Most of us know the story of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet from God who, who prophesied that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years as a sign that God was not pleased. And Elijah had at some, when, it, when the famine had gone on for several years, God miraculously provided for Elijah. He let, he let crows bring Elijah food in the middle of the desert. He sent Elijah to a widow who was about to make her last meal and die with her kids. And God supernaturally multiplied the food in the woman's meal barrel and, and both of them were sustained. But Elijah was a man of faith and power for the hour and he, he challenged all the pagan prophets of Baal to a showdown on Mount Carmel. And I'm telling you the story because there may be somebody sitting here, you don't know the story, you never heard it, so I've got to tell it to you because where we're going to read, we're going to pick up right after I finish telling this story. He has the showdown and he does this. He says, listen, I'll prepare an altar. You prepare an altar. I'll slay an ox or whatever and put it on there. You do the same thing and we'll pray. And whatever God answers by fire from heaven and burns up the sacrifice, we will all agree that is the real God. And they said, you're on. And so they dance around and cut themselves and do all kinds of demonic gyrations for hours. He let them go first. He ain't scared. He let them go first. They did. Nothing happened. And then finally, Elijah said, Hey, listen, I know who I serve. I know who I serve. Whom I serve, for you English people. And he said, Pour water on it. And they got water. I guess seawater because it was a drought. Hadn't rained in three and a half years. They poured water on the altar and poured more water on the altar, poured more water on the altar. And he looked up to heaven and cried out to God and God answered by fire and burned up the sacrifice, the stones, the water until there was nothing but dry dust left. Hallelujah. That's the God we serve, by the way. That's the God we serve. And so he goes up on, up on the edge of the mountain, looks toward the sea and prays for rain and God brings rain. Here's the next part of the story, though. Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab, the one who probably introduced Baal worship into that nation to begin with, sent a message to Elijah, and she said, Listen, may the gods do more to me, and also, if you survive until this time tomorrow, because I got your number. I know where you stay. And you are a dead man. Let's pick the story up. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. 450 of them, by the way. Talking about insurpassable odds. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. I want you to hear the next phrase. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. 
I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate, drank, and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God, which, by the way, is where Moses received the Ten Commandments hundreds and even thousand years before. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? How many of you know that anytime God asks us a question, he's not looking for an answer? What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord's about to pass by. Then a a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, by the way, just like he did before. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword, and I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. And go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha the son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah to succeed you as prophet. Elijah was depressed. Anybody got any different views? Was Elijah depressed, you think? He's laying down. He doesn't want to do anything but sleep. He don't even want food. He wants God to kill him. He's so despondent. After one of the greatest victories in the Old Testament, after much of the apparatus of Baal worship was completely wiped out and seriously compromised, after the rain started again, just like he prophesied, God was revealed as true. The devil didn't like it, and his mouthpiece, Jezebel, put a price on Elijah's head, and it wiped him out. He went from the most glorious spiritual high to the most horrible spiritual low and literally didn't want to live. So he flees to the southernmost city of Judah, the other two tribes area, to save his life and to sulk. And then he leads his servant there and goes out in the desert all by himself. He was depressed. He was wishing for death. He had lost his appetite. He was excessively engrossed in self-pity. He was hopeless about his future. 
And he was felt totally futile as far as the idea of trying anymore. I just want you to know this. According to many surveys, as many as half of Americans struggle with depression at some level at some time. You may not. But can I tell you, just as pastor who hears a lot of things, people ask me to pray for this and I, I'm in conversations, somebody sitting near you right now struggles with depression. Somewhere in your area, and I'm, I'm not pointing at anybody, certain people, I'm just saying the odds are this morning, somebody on your row or in your section of this church struggles with depression. You say, well, we shouldn't. If we're really spiritual, we shouldn't. <laughs> Tell Elijah that. I've never called fire out of heaven. I've never prayed for it not to rain for three and a half years, which I never would, I don't think. Well, God told him to do it, but I, I, I don't think I'm in that league. But a man in that league struggled with depression. Uh, some statistics from 2008 estimates that 20% of the U.S. population will experience clinical depression at some point in their lives and that people born after 1950 are 10 times as likely to experience depression. And the greatest growth in depression in our nation is the ages between 25 and 45. And since COVID, these are old. These statistics are what? 12 for 13 years old. Since COVID, depression and suicide have skyrocketed in this nation. And much of it is among our young people. The people you would expect to be so encouraged about their future. So hopeful, anticipating. Depression is at an all-time high in our nation. And the church is not exempt. Christian psychologist Gary Collins says, he, he, he describes depression this way. It may be as mild as passing periods of sadness that follows a personal disappointment. And in its severe forms can be overwhelming feelings of despair, fear, exhaustion, immobilizing apathy, hopelessness, and inner desperation. That sounds like Elijah, doesn't it? And there may be somebody here today It sounds like you. I want you to know you're not trapped. There's solutions for you. God has solutions for you, and I want to share them with you. Depression's often rooted in experiences of failure, rejection, boredom, disappointment, or trauma. But the primary feeders of depression tend to be this. They tend to be unhealthy thought patterns and perceptions that impact our emotions and our will. A lot of you that's been in church a long time, you, you say it this way, stinking thinking. Stinking thinking can drive you in a hole. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And you know, isn't it interesting? I preached about shame two weeks ago. I preached about fear last week. And in every one of these, the devil messes with our head. 
If you don't recognize when the devil's whispering in your ear and playing between your ears, if you don't recognize it and, and fend against that with the help of the Holy Spirit, it will drive you into a grave. You've got to deal with stinking thinking. I'll come back to that. But here's the, here's the scary thing is that depression can be exploited by the demonic. You know, listen, I, I've read some stuff. I, I understand most of us, we talk about chemical roots for, for depression. Evidently, the jury's still out on whether serotonin levels affect depression or depression affects serotonin levels. And so there's, there are some physical things that can kind of lead toward depression. But I'm not a doctor. I'm not going there today. Here's what I will tell you. There's a solution for depression. And Jesus is all up in the middle of it. He's all up in the middle of it. But can I tell you, regardless of the root of your depression, the devil loves to play and hide inside these matters of the heart, whether it's shame or it's fear and anxiety or it's depression, and there are others, whether it's temptations and all kinds of things, the enemy, even if he is not the prime cause of your matter of the heart, he wants to pull strings and push your buttons and manipulate Manipulate what is going on in your heart and your mind. Anytime you're experiencing despair, anytime you're experiencing fear and anxiety, I can promise you the devil is standing in the shadows either cheering it on or pulling and pushing. That doesn't make you bad. That doesn't mean you're possessed. It means you got an enemy. And He knows how to push our buttons. But when we become aware that He is lurking around the edges of our despairing feelings or our disappointments or our wounds or our trauma, when we realize that He is always just beyond sight, ready to manipulate something that's happened to you or something you did. He's always there wanting to... Yeah. Always wanting to mess with us. I don't have to cause fear. I hope it just causes awareness. We got to be able to call his bluff. We've got to be able to call his bluff. So, why was Elijah depressed despite the huge victory he just had? I'll give you three major reasons with a few things in below each of them. The first thing is, is he thought lies. He thought lies. Lies were laced through his th thinking process. He believed some things about God and his circumstance that were by no means true. But he thought lies. Guys, go to that next slide if you would. He thought lies. In the first lie, you could just say it this way, the way we can all relate to it. I'm a failure. I believe that's the first lie that was really at the root of Elijah's despondency. 
Here he was. He put his life and his whole existence in the hands of God. He did everything God told him to do. He even slew all these prophets of Baal. Fire fell from heaven. Rain came again. And now, God, what did it get me? I'm a failure. I, I, stu- I took a stand. I spoke up. I stood up like I've been telling all of you we need to do. We need to stand up and speak up in this corrupt and perverted generation. He did all of that. He did everything God told him to do. And now he's running for his life. He's like, I guess I failed. And the devil's going, yeah, you failed. He's such a Loser. Loser. But I'm just going to mention one more lie that I think he dealt with that day in in that period. And here it is. And that's final. He believed he was a loser and he believed that his condition was final. See, this is one thing that enmeshes people in a depressed state is they may fail. They may struggle. Something might happen circumstances may turn in a disappointing direction, but if the devil can just tell you it's final, it'll never change. Those words, it'll never change, are enough to drive people into depression. Am I talking to anybody? You hear what I'm saying? You may not be there now, but you've been there and you may have somebody in your family you know's there. I'm telling you, there's hope. Because Elijah was thinking lies. But he wasn't just thinking lies, he was feeling lies. They affected the way he felt. Elijah was feeling lies. First lie that he felt was, I'm alone. By the way, this is one reason I'm so passionate about life groups. I'm passionate about Sunday school. I'm passionate about men's groups and women's groups because nobody should ever feel Alone. I'm not saying you're bad because you feel alone. I'm saying there's remedies. First of all, Jesus says with his own mouth, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. First of all. First of all. But can I tell you, one of the major mistakes that people that are beginning to feel depressed, one of the major mistakes they make is withdraw from other people. Some of you are nodding. You know what I'm saying is true. But you know what? They're playing into the devil's game when they do that. Nobody wants to be around me. I'm so depressed. Go back to previous discussion this morning about needing to connect. Elijah felt that. Elijah fled. Elijah had a servant until he got to the edge of the desert and then he left the servant and went another day's journey into the desert alone. He made the classic mistake that people that are beginning to feel the onset of desperation or despair or depression, he made the same mistake. This mighty man of God, this man of faith and power for the hour, he made the same mistake. Don't separate yourself. Don't isolate when you begin to feel, struggle with despairing, hopeless thoughts. Don't run in the wrong direction. 
He felt alone. There's a song that I, I heard recently. It's called Just Like You. I just want to read some of the lyrics to you. You wouldn't like the style. It's kind of a rap kind of style, but has a lot of uh, truth in it. It says, just in case my car goes off the highway or the plane I get on decides it's my last day, I want you to know when you're alone and you feel afraid, you're not the only person in the world that isn't okay. There's millions of us just like you, like you, like you, just like you, like you. There's millions of us just like you. It's strange the way the mind can wander, but also stop to gossip and chat with memories that you and me aren't really fond of. Maybe you're out to find love. Maybe you lost who you was. Maybe you're just like me and feel the need to stay in your rut because if you left it, you might feel like you're no longer you. It's so impressive the way the mind can play with the truth. It's interesting that nobody can walk in your shoes but still relate and feel the same way. So in a way, I guess we do. You ever think about what it would be like if the clouds were gone and you could see light? If the door was open, would you take flight or just close the curtains up and stay inside? Take a walk with me. Take a risk with me. I'm scared too and it gets so tempting when you're so empty to disown everything you hold dearly when you know clearly you've been so buried in your own fairy tale. The soul's tearing bunch of holes in me. I relate to it, but in case you've been thinking, no one does. And he goes on and on. You're not alone. Now, there's a lot of people outside these doors for all practical purposes they may be. There's no excuse for a believer ever coming to the place that they're totally alone. I get it. Sometimes nobody in this church understands, and maybe they can never totally understand where you're at or what you're going through. And by the way, when somebody's going through a trial, don't tell them I know how you feel. Even if you've been through something almost exactly like them, you don't know how they feel about it. The best thing to say is, I've been through some similar stuff, and I know how hurtful it was for me. I'm trying to, I'm trying to imagine how hurtful this is for you. But you're never alone. And when, when you whisper in your own heart, I'm alone, the devil has taken over your thought processes. I'm not saying you're possessed. I'm saying he's, he's messing with your head. And when you're alone, your voice is the only one you're listening to. It's one reason it's so important not to isolate yourself because you need to hear other believers say what, what the truth is. I got to hurry. I get it. So I'm alone. Another thing that he felt, I believe, another lie he felt was I'm trapped. It'll never be any different. There's no way out. I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm confident that a number of you know this feeling. You struggle with something for years and you really feel like there's no solution. Another lie that Elijah began to feel. 
You say, but I've been praying for 20 years and it's no different. It's still a lie. Hopelessness is not the playground for believers to play on. I know this is heavy stuff. I know it's heavy. We got to be real, guys. We got to be real. God's people are struggling. And sometimes for all the wrong reasons when we don't have to struggle. Elijah was, I believe he would sum up this lie that he felt about being trapped maybe like this. Everything that matters is threatened and I can't win. I'm not enough. Let me say that again. Everything that matters to me is threatened and I can't seem to win. I'm not enough. He felt trapped. But he also felt intimidated by evil. It's absurd that he would run from Jezebel when he just wiped out most of her religious apparatus. But he did. He was intimidated by evil. It is not God's will for any of us to be intimidated by anything. Look, do we really believe when we say me and God together are enough for anything I have to face? Do we really believe that? If we do, then we should never give in. I'm not saying we're not going to feel intimidated. I'm saying we should never give in to a feeling of intimidation. We should never direct our next step based on intimidation from hell. We shouldn't. But we do sometimes. I'm telling you, it's not God's will or God's way. God wants us to never feel trapped to the point that we feel like we've got to do what the devil suggests. That it's our only option. The third thing that I believe, third the lie that he felt is my life is a waste. All my efforts didn't count for anything. I went through all that, God, and... Jezebel's still in charge. She's still calling the shots. I did all of that. And still a whole nation is, is, is uh, you know, lusting after idols. I did all of that. It's a waste. My life was wasted. You want to depress somebody? Let them feel like their life was a waste. Amen? He was basically saying, I don't see the progress. I don't see a compelling purpose that's possible for me. I gave it my best shot. I burned, I, I, you know, I crashed and burned. Here I sit. A wasted shell. And that's a lie from hell. Hear me, that's a lie from hell. That's a lie from hell. Amen? All right. So that's all under he felt lies. The third thing that I believe caused him to go into depression is that he failed to see the power and sovereignty of God. He just saw God rain fire out of heaven. He, just, he had been living on miracles for years. God fed him with birds. 
He fed him with a, a never-ending flask of oil and a bin of flour and Zarephath with the widow. He had been living on miracles from heaven for three and a half years. And yet somehow his eyes were taken off the God that did all that. Anybody ever been there? I think we can all relate to this. Amen? Your next crisis, it's just like, you got to make yourself remember what, what God did for you last time you were in a pickle. Am I the only one like that? I mean, i got to go back and, and testify to myself and say, wait a minute, I've been in situations like this before and you never failed me. Why am I so scared now? Why am I so discouraged now when been there, done that, got the shirt? That's where Elijah was. Somehow he lost sight of God's awesome power and love and provision. He lost sight of the miracles he had been living on for three and a half years. And now his life is threatened and he feels like it's all a waste. And he's lost his grip on who God is in his life. Yeah, we got to fight for that sometimes. The great Martin Luther, I'm not talking about Martin Luther King Jr., but I'm talking about the one he's named after. Martin Luther, the founder of the Protestant Reformation back in the 1500s, if I remember my centuries right. Martin Luther was the one that basically said, our salvation depends on our faith in the grace of God and that Scripture is our authority not the church leaders. Scripture is our ultimate authority. He's, he's, he's the guy that kind of started that in the modern era. Not, you know, it was that way in the beginning. But anyway, it's not a time for a lesson on church history. Martin Luther was one of the greatest men of faith of his day. I mean, he stood up against insurmountable odds. He put his life on the line for the, what he perceived as the great battle for the church to maintain its faithfulness to Christ. And yet, he was given to bouts of depression. And during one of his bouts of depression, after he had struggled for 10 years in the cause that God had laid on his heart, after he had gone through a, a plague and seen many family members die and all kinds of things. Every, he locked himself in a dark room for days. And his wife came in one day dressed in black. And he looks up at her and he says, who died? She said, God did. And he was just livid. That's blasphemy. How dare you say that? She said, well, by the way you're acting... He must have died. And it helped break Martin Luther out of his funk of depression. Sometimes we act like our God's dead. We act like our God is deaf. We act like our God is hard-hearted. We act, our actions, our responses to disappointments and to fears and to all of these things. Sometimes our actions say that my God is not right here. He's somewhere, but He's not right here. And He's not ready to demonstrate His grace and glory. Elijah forgot the victories. 
He forgot the testimonies of God's faithfulness. He forgot the divine intervention. This is one reason, by the way, our thanksgiving and our testimonies are so important. Not just to all of you, but to me, the one giving them. Your testimony is important for you to say it. What are you doing? You're hedging against forgetting the greatness of the God that you embrace. So what brought God out? How did God bring Elijah out of his depression? I got four or five things for you. We're going to do them. We're going, we're going to pray. Number one, the first thing he did was he led Elijah through steps. He didn't just jerk him out of depression and throw him into ecstasy. He led him step by step. You say, what do you, where do you see that in Scripture? He woke him up and fed him, let him go back to sleep. Woke him up and fed him again, let him go back to sleep. Woke him up again, said, start walking. He, he didn't speak to him the first demonstration of power. He, he, he led him through steps. And can I tell you, sometimes your journey out of depression is daring to believe God will help you make one little important step. And for some of you, that might be signing up for a life group. And I didn't plan on saying that, so just... But that might be the step you need to take to keep from withdrawing into depression. God understands how to take us through steps. He has a process that He can lead you out of despondency. Second thing is this, is that God challenged His thinking. You say, what, what do you mean? He comes back and God says to Elijah, He says, I have 7,000 prophets that have not been the knee to Baal nor kissed him. You see, Elijah's thinking was, I'm the only one. He says it twice. And God, that's part of the process, by the way. God asked him the same question twice. Not because God is hard of hearing, but because Elijah needed to process what his perspective was that was killing him emotionally. God challenged his thinking and said, no, 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 no. I've got 7,000 people you don't even know about. You don't know everything, Elijah. I am large and in charge. And I've got 7,000 that have never caved in to Baal worship. Now, you get up. And this is the next thing. He gave him a new purpose. Before I go there, let me tell you, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Eleanor Canarthy said a number of years ago, she said that the average person has 200 negative thoughts a day. The average depressed person has 600 negative thoughts in a day. You hear what I'm saying? God needed to adjust Elijah's thinking. And can I tell you this? If you are not willing to discipline your mind and willfully, consistently, with, with, with great urgency, push negative thoughts out of your thought stream over and over with Scripture, then you will not win the battle. You must decide, I can win the battle for my thoughts. If you really want to break free. Of course, the problem with depression is if you get depressed enough, you don't want to break free anymore. But God wants to change that. And He will step into the middle of that. 
But God gave him a new purpose. He gave Elijah a new way to serve his kingdom and serve people. He gave him a new thing. Some of you, one of the reasons you're depressed is you're focused on you. It's time to start focusing on God and other people. He has a purpose for your life. I don't care how many mistakes you've made. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what kind of struggles you've had. I, I do care. But I'm saying regardless of those things, there's a purpose for the rest of your life. And if you don't connect with the purpose God brought you into this world for, you will. if you are prone to depression, you'll always be on the edge if you don't see purpose in your pain. God gave him a new purpose, gave him a new assignment. He also gave him a new companion. Can you believe it? He gave him Elisha. He gave him someone that he needed to model for the, the faith for and someone to mentor. He gave him a comrade in arms. And if you don't have somebody that's helping you fight the spiritual battle, somebody you can share anything with, somebody that you can tell them what prayer needs you have, and you know they'll pray, and you know they'll care, and you know they won't judge you, but they'll just love you and challenge you and encourage. if you don't have that God wants you to have that and if, it not, if it's not your spouse or it can't be your spouse it's somebody in this house if God called you to this house there's somebody in this house that God wants to give that to you through I believe that say so how do I find that? you start praying first of all Henry Cloud said, virtually every emotional and psychological problem from addictions to depression has alienation or emotional isolation at its core or close to it. Recovery from these problems involves helping people get more connected to each other at deeper and healthier levels than they are. That's from a doctor. Finally, he gave him a new future. His future was in Elisha. Elisha would carry on the ministry. After he was gone in a chariot of fire.